a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. We're talking today about Iran because it's been 40 years since the revolution. A lot has changed. Uh, A lot of attitudes in that country have changed. The world has changed so much, Keith. Let's reminisce, shall we? All right. Well, look, I was there in 1973. So if someone had said to me, within six years, this country will return to the Middle Ages, I wouldn't have believed it. So the Shah of Iran was in power. He was putting the country through major reforms, uh, very much in favour of women's education, supporting women, very sympathetic to the Baha'i religious minority. Many of his own staff came from that Baha'i community. And so the Baha'is have always valued a lot of education. And the Shah was uh, in alliance with America. It was very much pro-America. He's America's police officer, really, in the Gulf. And um, so that was 1973 when I was there. It's a beautiful country. I'm going to be critical of it now, but I've got to say it's a beautiful country, well worth visiting, Isfahan, et cetera, fantastic locations. No alcohol, just an FYI. Well, as a Methodist, I agree with that. So uh, I have no problem with no alcohol. So that was 1973. The revolution occurs in 1979 which came as a complete surprise to me, but also the CIA. So I'm in good company. I don't feel too embarrassed to be taken by surprise. Nobody expected uh, the Grand Ayatollah Khomeini, who was living at that time in exile in Paris, to return with the glory that he did. So bubbling under the surface, invisible to watchers like myself, there were a degree of resistance from people within Iran. So you had... Um, the Communist Party, which has been long established, uh, left-wing secular political groups. You also had a Shia, uh, religious authority. So it's a Shia country. So the Shah was Shia, right? It's a huge Shia population there. And, of course, Iran sees itself as the leader of the global Shia community. So you had these left-wing people who were opposed to what the Shah was doing, particularly through his secret police, the Savak. But you also had these religious people who were concerned about, oh, educating girls and all the rest of it. So ironically, you ended up with this really weird coalition of the left and the right, a secular left and a religious right who came together, agreeing that they both wanted to get rid of the Shah. So the rebellion gets underway 40 years ago. The Shah uh, flies out of the country and eventually dies in exile. So the country then has this weird government system. So the supreme ruler of the country is the Grand Ayatollah, originally Grand Ayatollah Khomeini, and the current one is um, the Grand Ayatollah Khomeini. It's very confusing names. So the first leader died about a decade later. So he created this unique situation where you've got the religious figures, the mullahs, who are the overall architects of the nation's destiny, but you also have a parliamentary democracy for people being elected to an Iranian parliament, but the supreme power resides with the clerics. So although there is uh, an Iranian leader, political leader, he doesn't have much influence, really, because it's the Grand Ayatollah and the religious clerics, the religious rulers, that have the overall say. Now, they would say, look... 
Our job as guardians of the nation is to make sure that all the laws that get passed are in accordance with Sharia thinking. So there's strict Quranic thinking. So they take a very hard line, including, as you've reminded us, about the whole question of alcohol, treatment of women, although they're probably not as bad as the treatment of women as you see in Saudi Arabia, which, of course, are Sunni, the Sunni country. And also, it seems to have progressed. Like, we're still talking 40 years ago when the revolution happened, where it has it's somewhat progressed since there. A bit of progress. I wouldn't want to over-exaggerate that, though. Mm. Um, but it, you're dealing with a country that's very educated. The fifth most common language on the internet is Farsi. So you've got Iranians who are very IT smart. So you, you've got a flourishing internet culture. And you've got people who have, will see themselves as the inheritors of a 3,000-year tradition. You know, we're talking about the ancient Persians. If you go back into your classical history, Persia was always a major player in the history of the Middle East. So they see themselves as a continuation of that old Persian empire. In recent decades, we've started calling it Iran. But, you know, it is Persia. It's the old country of Persia, not Arab. They, they are Persian, they're different from Arabs, um, so a very strong sense of national identity. But also trying in a modern era to run a country based on Sharia thinking, and it, it's actually very difficult. So the, the Americans were horrified at the loss of the Shah. They placed sanctions on Iran, and Australia has got along pretty well with those sanctions, hoping to drive the mullahs out of power, 40 years on, they're still in power, so the American sanctions have failed. President Obama recognised that the hardline approach wasn't working, and so he negotiated um, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action to get Iran to agree not to acquire nuclear weapons and, at the same time, for the sanctions to be lifted against Iran. So that was the, the agreement that he reached. I think it was a major achievement of the Obama administration. Trump has come along, has cancelled that agreement and has thrown the whole thing into confusion because the agreement was supported by Britain and France, Russia and China and Germany. So it's the UN Security Council Big Five plus one. And the Americans have suddenly unilaterally said, we don't agree with that. And so they have broken the agreement and they're now trying to impose sanctions on any country that tries to do business with Iran. Russia and China and India have said, we'll ignore you, but by the looks of it, Australia will go ahead with uh, reintroducing sanctions. Yeah, and, and this is something we need to really delve into because this is just politically and, and diplomatically really frowned upon this whole move by the US. No one agreed with it at all, did they, Keith? I reckon we'd come back to that in a minute, right. though. Let's go back to the revolution. And um, and what we were talking about before we came on air is that one of the, uh, the, the um, most modern examples of what happened during the revolution was captured on the movie Argo, which <laughs> I quite liked. And I think it got a few Oscar nods about, I don't know, five, six years ago. Whenever it was made, it had Ben Affleck in it and he was the director and blah, blah, blah. And it was about the Americans who got stuck there um, for over a year yep. during the revolution. 444 days. Briefly remind yeah. everyone of that and also why you hate that movie, by the Radio. way. Well, the movie, as you say, is about the uh, early days of the Iranian revolution. And so in late 1979, the revolution has taken place. The Grand Ayatollah is now in power and the students with government support march on the US embassy. Um, what the movie does not bring out as to why they decided to march on the embassy. So people could watch the movie and have no sense of history. Now, you need to have a sense of history to understand Iran. 
the CIA had forgotten their history and obviously your friend Ben Affleck clearly <laughs> is, is an ignoramus on history. So It's called Blockbuster, Keith. There may be a blockbuster, <laughs> but it just shows that people have got poor taste in movies. So I, I fell asleep during it. I was, <laughs> I, I was just so appalled by it. So the background, which is not covered in the movie, which would help you make sense of it from an Iranian point of view, is that in the early 1950s, right, there was um, a leader called Muzadek who was Prime Minister of Iran. Shah was still in power. Muzadek was someone who wanted to nationalise the foreign oil interests in Iran. The most obvious one is BP, British Petroleum, British Persian Airline, uh, uh, oil company. So the British Secret Service worked with CIA, this newly formed organisation, to overthrow Muzadek. And the operation was conducted from the American embassy in Tehran. The Shah had fled the country and the, in his absence, CIA and the British, but basically it was a CIA operation, plotted for the overthrow of Muzadek, which was achieved. Muzadek was overthrown. The Shah returns. What the movie that you enjoyed so much failed to point out is that the Iranians in 1979 realised that back in 1953, the Shah of Iran had fled, gone to live in exile, and the Americans in the US Embassy had planned for the return of the Shah by the overthrow of the, the government. That's why they marched on the embassy. They could not believe it when they marched on the embassy and they were allowed to walk straight into it because CIA had forgotten their own history. Right. So the, the, the whole movie offends you because of this. Yeah, because it fails to give the historical perspective. Why would a group of students want to march on the American embassy? It's just that the Iranians had remembered their history. Now, the problem is the Americans of today were not as good as the Americans were back in 53. CIA couldn't. Uh, organise another coup um, against the new leader, this time uh, the Grand Ayatollah. So these diplomats were held as hostage. Reagan did a deal with them. Reagan, remember, was the presidential candidate running in 1980. Behind the scenes, there was obviously a bit of negotiation going on with Iran, whereby pretty well on the morning, I think, of the inauguration of President Reagan, they were let go by the Iranian authorities. And President Reagan could boast about this diplomatic achievement being achieved so early in his career. Right. Well, this is, it does open up the whole, you know, context of the revolution and what happened there and America's involvement. So thank you for shedding light and the correct light, you know, for those good, who, had, who had seen Argo and was basing the Iranian revolution facts on that. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing you've got to bear in mind is that in, um, from 1980 uh, onwards, the United States was supporting Iraq Saddam Hussein, against Iran. So Iraq figured, because remember, Iraq is an Arab country. We're talking about Persia, Iran. It's a very long-running dispute um, that's gone on for centuries. Iraq, with American incorporation, Saddam Hussein, working with the Americans, invaded Iran. And we get the, one of the longest conventional wars of the 20th century. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. We're talking about the Iranian Revolution because it happened 40 years ago this year. Uh, it was a very defining moment in their, in their lives, the country, the world, 
And Keith, what has happened since? So obviously you've got a big change in government then. How has the country progressed since then? Well, the country has not progressed as much as people would have liked because basically the Iranian spiritual leaders are not good economists. So there's still a high degree of corruption. It was never that good under the Shah, but they have not been able to eradicate corruption. You've got a black market operating. Um, you've got people who are very dissatisfied with the way the country is being governed. So it's, it's been not been a good story. But you do have, as you said, one of the most educated populations yep. in the world. So, and this is because they've got a long tradition. You know, they would say, we've got 3,000 years tradition of, of being well-educated. We're simply continuing uh, that tradition. And so, yes, if people are well-educated, they're well-motivated, etc. And, of course, they're sitting on a lot of oil. And that's what Obama was trying to do in his eight years, was to bring Iran back from the cold, bring it back into the international community. Iran would agree not to acquire nuclear weapons. It's worth bearing in mind, by the way, that in the early 1970s, Iranians were negotiating with the Australian government to buy Australian uranium. By sheer fluke, we had at that time a minister of resources, FX Connor, who believed the price of uranium would go up. Therefore, he said, no, we won't do a deal at the moment. Come back to us in a few years' time. Thankfully, the stuff never got sold to Iran. Otherwise, we, we would be drawn into all the controversy over Iran's nuclear ambitions because it's Australia's uranium. But we never did get round to selling it. And the Grand Ayatollah said that nuclear power was an instrument of the devil and that Iran, under him, would stop the nuclear program that was beginning under the Shah. So you then get this freezing for a few years because uh, the, the Grand Ayatollah Ali Khomeini was in power for 10 years. And then having... Um, with him having died, his replacement revisits the whole issue of nuclear, so-called civilian nuclear power. But, of course, there's always a close link between civilian nuclear power and the military uses of nuclear power. But to this day, is there any evidence that they are developing weapons of mass destruction with their uranium? The International Atomic Energy Agency would say no, right? The Israelis and some Americans would say they are. Um, but... As I say, Obama was trying to nick that nuclear ambition in the bud and we simply will not know. The British and Germans in their intelligence service are saying there's no evidence to support nuclear ambitions. But as I say, some Israelis and some Americans think that may well be that they're trying to develop nuclear weapons. Yeah, so Trump comes in and undoes all these years of work that the international community has done with Iran, but then on the flip side is then befriending Kim Jong-un at the same time. Exactly. And if I were Kim Jong-un, I'd have to say to myself, how can I do a, a nuclear deal with a man who's just walked away from an Iranian nuclear deal? Why would he prefer to do a deal with North Korea? Because there's a bigger picture in the Middle East which um, Americans and others don't seem to grasp. In other words, when you look at when I look at the Middle East with, with a bit of history behind me, I can see a country or a series of countries that have got these old age feuds. Forget America, they're just the new kid on the block. So you've got this dispute between Iran and some of the Arab states. You've also got the dispute between the Sunni and the Shia. So you have Iran as the leader of the Shia community. You have Saudi Arabia as the leader of the Sunni community. So this is a rivalry that goes on and off for the last 1,300 years, going back to the beginning of the faith. So when I look at the Middle East, I see all of these other larger issues. That Iran has been pledged to the destruction to destroy Israel. So obviously Israel is looking for allies in the Middle East. 
One of its quieter allies is the relationship with Saudi Arabia, right? Saudi Arabia has also made very unpleasant comments about Israel, but has decided that before they destroy Israel, they're first of all going to deal with Iran. And so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So we have this very strange alliance now between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which neither country wants to talk about in public. But those two are coming together because of a mutual fear of Iran. But why would they fear Iran? Oh, because it's a huge country, you know. Yeah, it's like geographically huge. But... Geographically huge, huge population, 80 million people, a lot of young people. The One of the uh, things that the Grand Ayatollah Khomeini did was to scrap the Shah of Iran's birth control program. And he said, Iranian women have got to start producing children. Ironically, in the last few years, Iran is now the poster child for the birth control programs because they suddenly realised, we've got a country that's awash with young people, we don't know what we're going to do with them. Now, the Grand Ayatollah said, we've got to have young children because we're going to send them into battle. So we need to have lots of young soldiers. Well, at the moment, Iran's... Uh, still involved in local wars, but not the really big conventional war that we saw between Iraq and Iran. So Iran has now decided that before you can get married, you've actually got to get classes on birth control. And Iran is now a good example about how you can have a birth control program introduced by the government. Those poor women, Keith. Well, they're a lot better off now under the new thinking than they were when they were just producing babies for the military machine. Eye-opening, as always. Thank you. This has been Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.